I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews toward the end of the Bible there. And we, as a routine, uh, study through, read and study through a book in the Bible and talk about different sections of it from week to week. That's kind of how we, we do that. And we're working our way through this book to read it and say, what is that all about and what do we do about it? And Hebrews chapter 11 is a story of a lot of people. Okay, it's a section with a lot of names of men and women who lived a long time ago, all on the theme of these are people who, who, who had faith. They trusted God. We saw last week, it isn't just that they had faith in general, like they were optimists. People say that sometimes. Well, they're people of faith, and they just mean they're happy or they're cheerful or something. This is specifically people who had faith in the God of the Bible. They trusted what God has to say. They believed him. So there's content and there's focus to to biblical faith, and we're going to continue that theme this week. Now, there's a there's a, a sheet in your bulletin that has sermon notes on it. If you if you don't have that out yet, you really should, because I'm going to comment on a whole number of things related to that piece of paper. There's a there's a key word that I have used in my in my comments this week. It's the term pilgrims, and I, I want to say just a couple of things about that as we get ourselves going this morning. The, the term pilgrim is his well used in Christian literature, but it's also well used in um, well in secular circles, meaning uh, not church related. So if I said to you, "Well, hey there, pilgrim, I wouldn't touch that gun if I were you," you right away would know that I was talking about. See, how do you know that? Uh huh. Unless you've watched some good old movies, did you know that you can? Enter that in a Google search, John Wayne and Pilgrims, and they'll give you like a five-minute thing with all of the references, just like one right after the other. It'll haunt you, and uh, you'll, you'll want to obey that voice. <laughs> anyway, Pilgrim, Pilgrim, uh, he's just using it, I suppose, as a term, but in, in a lot of other settings, the term Pilgrim shows up. So, for example, uh, many of you right away would think of John Bunyan's work, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, one of the great Puritans of old, long time ago, wrote a book. He was in prison, and he, he wrote a book that's an extended allegory telling about a guy who goes on a, on a journey. He's a pilgrim, and he's going to end in the celestial city. And it's a story that, that is intended to parallel the Christian life, meaning there are fun times, easier times. There are times that are scary and difficult and fraught with fear and danger. There are times of problems, times he doesn't do it quite right. But it's Pilgrim's Progress, making, making a journey. That's one example. Uh, about a year ago, I read another book using that term in its title. Uh, it's called They Knew They Were Pilgrims. It's not particularly a Christian book, but it's, it's telling the story of Plymouth Colony, the founding of the United States, and those people who came as pilgrims. So interesting book, I suppose, maybe a little long and academic, but it was, it was, a, it was a good book to read. And then on the concept, I just have one more I want to just highlight for you because the title of this book is in today's text, okay? And it's on the same theme. So some years ago, I, was, I heard about this book because my mother read it. I was, I was very young. And I just remember her talking about how much she loved it. So later on as an adult, I thought, huh, I should look up that book. It's called They Looked for a City. Interesting. It's a story of, of two Jewish people, Yente and um, Benjamin, as the story t- tells their, their accounting, Warsaw Ghetto, World War II, and how, indeed, they, they had their eye 
uh, on another place, even as they endured such awfulness here on earth. Okay? They looked for a city. They had an eye on a different prize. Now, that idea is where we want to go this morning. Okay? Because the text we're going to look at, part of this bigger telling of the story of people of faith, it talks about how some of these people thought what they longed for, what they, what they desired. And, and I, I want us to think together about, about that as it relates to us, about how people think. And I'll tell you why, right up front, so you know where we're headed here, all right? If, if, your, if your eyes are completely focused on this life, okay, if all your treasures are here, that's going to affect the way you live, and the way you're disappointed. Because let me be honest with you, all of your longings and dreams will not be fulfilled in this life. That's a bitter pill for many to swallow. I hoped, I hoped, I hope, and it's never quite like that. So if all your hopes and dreams are are here, you're going to live a certain way. You're going to be chasing those things, trying for those things, and terribly disappointed when they don't work out. But if, if as a Christian now, if you think with the mindset that's presented in the Bible... Okay, then, then you realize that your hopes and dreams shouldn't all be set here, that there's another day in another place in the presence of God, really, when our hopes and longings will be fully satisfied. So I, I just want to give you those, those seed thoughts ahead of time as we jump into the text. We have a lot to think about, and, and it, it makes such sense to me because we're pilgrims too, all of us. All right, I'd like to pray for us, and we'll jump into the text. So let's ask God's help. Father, I thank you so much that we can open the word of God together, and here uh, is the spirit of God guides us. Uh, we, can, we can reflect on our lives in your truth, and we can ask you to help us. All of us need your help. We do, in different ways, in different places. All of us live in the same space here. Uh, a space of, of struggle to believe and some days doing really well and other days not. Some days trusting you a lot, some days not so much. And dealing with desires and longings, sometimes that we, we talk about publicly and others that are just hidden and we don't say about it, anything about them. Would you help us as we look at this part of the Bible together? In Jesus' name, amen. So on your sermon notes, as always, there are a couple of comments of review And I'll let you take a look at those. And then there's a paragraph that says just a bit about today's text. We begin Hebrews 11 last week. And we've been working our way, as I said, through this whole book, looking at Christ, our great prophet and priest and king. And now we're getting some examples of what that looks like. And so last week, we looked at Hebrews 11, 1 through 7. And we saw God as a creator in verse 2. We saw definition of faith, of course, to open the chapter. And then we looked at Abel, that is Cain and Abel, and Enoch in verse, verse 5, 5 and 6. And then verse 7, we looked at Noah and how all of these taught us something about a life of faith or trusting God. And so we're going to continue that pattern again today. Now, there are a couple of things that are going to be threads, theme threads that run through the rest of the text. We saw them last week, and uh, specifically this business of seeing and seeking and desiring. Seeing the unseen, we saw that last week, 
and it continues in today's text, seeking something different and thinking about the desires of your heart. Okay? So all of those just continue to run through the text. So I'm going to say four things about pilgrims. If you look at your sermon notes and, and looking at them in the text, those pilgrims, but thinking about us and how we might do similar things or think in similar ways. So I want to read then Hebrews 11, verses 8 uh, through 16. Okay? Let's look then to the word of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in, a land of, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, this this text is, is um, in several of its lines and concepts, is a favorite of mine. Um, all of Hebrews 11, all of the book of Hebrews, I, I realize, but these two paragraphs, they have some thoughts in them that I think are unique to this, to this text. In fact, one of these lines we'll look at in a bit, I think it's the only place in the whole Bible that that idea shows up. I think it's just here in the whole Bible. I'm always fascinated by things like that. So look with, with me then at this idea of pilgrims and how pilgrims think and how they live. So my first comment then, and I, I've arranged my notes more thematically than textually this week. So if that makes sense to you, great. Pilgrims see the unseen and trust God to keep his word. There's a bit of a definition. They, they see the unseen, and they trust God to keep his word. So the, the, the text begins with remembering the story of Abraham and Sarah. And I just want to think with you briefly about some of those details that are here in your sermon notes and, and elsewhere in the Bible. But the story of Abraham shows up in, at the, toward the end of Genesis 11. It's where you first really meet Abraham. And then as chapter 12 of, of the book of Genesis begins... Uh, it, it has what we call the Abrahamic covenant proper. That's the first three verses of Genesis 12, book of beginnings, of course. And in that covenant, God makes several promises, specifically land, descendants, and blessing, okay? Specifically, verse 3, blessing, where God says, in you, Abraham, and your descendants, 
All the families of the earth will be blessed. And we learn in Galatians 4 that when God said that to Abraham, that he had Messiah Jesus in mind the whole time. More on that in a minute. God said to Abraham, go to a land that I'll show you. Leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a land that I'll show you. Now, I want to say a couple things about that as reflected here in your sermon notes. Ur of the Chaldeans, that was a modern city for its time. It was not some little backwater place. All right, archaeologists who've done a lot of digging there have discovered that there were houses, in some cases three stories tall, uh, beautiful artwork in uh, in the, the patterns on the floor, the walls, that there was architecture and business, economy, uh, religion. There was a ziggurat built there that was stunning, apparently, all there during Abraham's time. Uh, there are a lot of indications in the text that Abraham came from a family of means. He was not some poor guy. Um, he had stuff. He had resources. He could have had a very nice life living in Ur of the Chaldeans, located right there on the Euphrates River, southern Iraq, as we would know it today, right above the Persian Gulf. He could have had a very nice life if he stayed there. So when God called him to go, that was an amazing thing. Now, I mentioned here one other little, um, I think it's interesting, at least to some of you who are more advanced in your mathematical skills than I am, which wouldn't be all that hard. Um, Back in, archaeologists would tell you, they found a clay tablet from Ur about Abraham's time that had a trigonometry equation. No, seriously, that was worked on all the way down through, through history uh, worked out at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge up until 75 years ago. So somebody back there with a clay tablet was doing trig. So when people look back and say, you know, those people a long time ago were just, you know, ignorant backwards people, club in one hand, living in a hole. No, actually they weren't. Thank you. Uh, Abraham was part of a pretty advanced culture of his time. I think that's interesting. I, I write about the time in math when they left actual numbers and went to odd symbols, that was about the time that Jay checked out and said, I'm going to go back to literature classes where they use actual words. Uh, I can do something with that, but all these symbols, I'm done. So some of you know what I'm talking about or can do that stuff. Lord bless you. You'd have done fine back in Ur of the Chaldeans. You could have solved that little equation for him. All that just to say, uh, this was a significant place to leave. So when God said to Abraham, go to a land that I'll show you, it was a pretty big deal. He was leaving a civilized place along with Sarah for what wasn't, for the unknown. Now, along the way, and I have these references here, there's more to it than let's take a hike. Okay? The promises of God in Genesis 12, and then you get to Genesis 15, Okay, you remember us recounting these things. These are some texts that we repeat often around here because I like us as a congregation to be able to think through the flow of history as presented in the Bible and to see the work of God all along. So in Genesis 15, that's the place where where Abraham and Sarah, of course, already obeying God. There's a moment when God calls Abraham out of his tent at night and says, look up at the stars and count them if you can. And then he says this, so shall your descendants be. Now, that said to Abram, whose name means father of many, who had no children. You think of the irony of this when he walked into Ace Hardware 
and said, hi, my name's Abram. Put that on my account. He said, oh, father of many. How many kids? That's a sore spot if you're waiting for children, especially if you're 90. Right? Little problem here. Father of many, uh, I have none. So Abraham, we're told in Genesis 15, verse 6, when God said, so shall your descendants be, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That moment echoes down through the pages of Scripture as a high point of faith. Paul references it in Romans chapter 4. Paul references it again in the book of Galatians. And here, a nod to the same moment, Abraham believed God based on no physical evidence. It was, his wife wasn't even pregnant, for goodness sakes. Uh, he's 90. He's old. I mean, come on. He knew. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And of course, the story of Abraham continues with God keeping his word, uh, all the ups and downs. Ishmael shows up. Isaac shows up, son of promise. Genesis 22 is that moment where God uses the other analogy of the sands of the seashore which is reflected here in this text. The writer of this book clearly is familiar with the whole Genesis account. The, the sand of the seashore, verse, verse 15, or verse, uh, what is it, verse 12. Uh, that's reminiscent of Genesis 22. Now, look with me then at the third little bullet point under that heading. What were they thinking? What were they thinking in leaving Ur the Chaldeans? What were they thinking in leaving all that was familiar, the known, for the unknown, what were they thinking? Well, here's the thing. They, were, they had an eye beyond their lifetime. And I want you to think with me for just a moment about that. This is a different way of thinking. Um, it was about 100 years ago, my grandparents on my mom's side left the old country and came over to this country, Ellis Island, uh, Statue of Liberty, all those things that were part of their first look at this new land. But part of what they were thinking was they wanted a better life for the kids, right? You familiar with that way of thinking? Um, I, I wonder if today we've changed that a little bit. Oh, sure, we say we want a better life for the kids. I, I think there's a, a, a much bigger emphasis in our world today about I want a better life. Yeah, see, you knew, didn't you? You want a better life for me. It's not the kids anymore. That's the origin of that big bumper sticker, on the back of the 35-foot Winnebago's that say, I'm spending my children's inheritance. Like, hey, the kids will be fine. Get a job, and off you go. Um, <laughs> your 35-foot Winnebago. Well, in, in the text, Abraham and Sarah, they went out. They're seeking a homeland, and they're, they're thinking beyond their lifetime, not just about how much fun I can have today, but about the spiritual heritage that's far bigger than me. This is a different way of thinking. I commend it to you. Uh, It's a big part of the story as we'll continue through it. They were thinking beyond their lifetime for another day where there are different values. Um, Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder or designer and builder is God. He had his eye on a different prize. You remember at the beginning of of my comments today, I said, uh, depending on how you think, if your prize is here, it's going to affect the way you live. If if your prize, if all the things you value are here, you're going to live a certain way. But if you're thinking like a pilgrim and you're thinking ahead to another day, eternity's day, 
and investing there, it's going to change the way you live. Okay? The, the metrics change. Your choices change. These people, these pilgrims, um, they were living for another day. See? More on that as we go along. Verse 13, and second on my bullet points, pilgrims know they're on a journey. It's very interesting to me. They, they clearly knew they were on a journey. You say, well, how'd they know that? I, well, I think God told them, for starters, verse 13, uh, look at where I got this from, okay? It says in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, remember seeing the unseen? As an essence of faith, they saw they saw these things and greeted them from afar, and they acknowledged. Some translations say they confessed. All right, that's a key term that I'm going to grab. They, con- they acknowledged or confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They acknowledged that they were, that they were pilgrims. Now, interestingly, track with me if you like these kinds of things. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay, the term that's used here for acknowledged or confessed is the same word that you're familiar with in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. Now, let's correct something quickly about that term. Often when we think about mistakes or sin, we think of admitting. We admitted it. And you probably know that there's a world of difference between admitting something and confessing it biblically. You know this if you're a parent. You might get your kid, you know, up against the wall where he or she finally admits it. Yes, I did that. Repentant? Oh, not a bit. But they admitted it. So biblically, if we confess, confess doesn't mean admit. Uh Uh-uh. Not it. To confess our sins, are you ready? Is to say the same thing about it that God does. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's the idea behind the word. To say the same thing about it that God does. And if all you did was admit it, you didn't, admit, you, know, you didn't confess anything. You just said, yep, guilty, I don't care. No, to confess something is to agree with God. So interesting, if you, uh, if you see that as the background behind the word, as I think it, it, it demonstrably would be, these folks, these pilgrims, they acknowledge, they confess, they're strangers and exiles on earth. And, and folks, if, if I may just press on something, um, I don't want this to be discouraging. It is intended to be. It's intended to be a dose of, of reality, hopefully not a, cup, a cold cup of water of reality. Um, this doesn't last forever. I don't mean church. It might seem like it lasts forever. No, no. Your life, your life, your life doesn't last forever. Even if you live a very long life, 105 years old, down to eating strained peas. Not picking on either of those, the age or the peas. If that's what you got, it's what you got. Right? It's short. You with me on this? It's short. In the whole history of the world, the universe, 100 years, if, if God grants that, it might not be 100 years for you. Probably not. Probably shorter. Maybe shorter than you think. Some of you who are younger, don't you be looking ahead saying it's for those old guys. No, 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 talking to you. It's shorter than you think, however long it is. And that's the uniform witness of Scripture. It's shorter than you think. Okay? 
That isn't intended to be depressing. It's intended to be motivating, to quit fooling around with nonsense and live a life that matters for the glory of God. It's intended to be motivating and encouraging. Aren't you, aren't you glad it doesn't last forever? There are moments when we would like it to last longer. They, uh, we, vacation would be great if it lasted another week or two days or something. Then there are other moments we say, thank God this doesn't last forever. This too shall pass, we say, and we're right and wise at that moment. This does not last forever. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't. Billy Graham in his 90s, um, what has surprised you most about life? How short it is. How short it is. It, it is. These fleeting days of our lives. This is the uniform witness of Scripture. Pilgrims know they're on a journey. I gave you here a whole list of Scripture references. I'm going to fly through them, not look them up. Here's the idea behind I just want you to hear it. I want it to be like a barrage. Okay? Uh, that's what I'm after today. Psalm 39.5, the writer says, you're, you're, our lives are like a handbreadth. Like a handbreadth. A breath. Those are a couple analogies. Or Psalm 90, verse 10, a psalm of Moses, who out there in the wilderness saw a whole generation die. Think of how many funerals that was in 40 years. Wow, Psalm 90 is where he says the years of our life are 70, or if due to strength, 80 years. But their, their, their sum is but toil and trouble, and soon it is gone, and we fly away, which is the origin of the song. All fly away, Psalm 90, verse 10. We didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. But the first part of the phrase says, soon, when will it be done for you? Biblically, the answer is soon. So live well, live wisely for the glory of God. Soon it is gone and we fly away. That's Psalm 90. Acts 13, verse 36 uh, has always stuck in my, well, always for about the last 40 years has stuck in my mind because about 40 years ago, I heard a sermon based on that one verse and I still remember the text, the preacher, and the title. Isn't that weird? It haunts, no, no, that's not true. Um, I think about it. I know who preached it. Words on my tombstone was the title. Acts 13, 36. It's a, it's a, it's a, in a sermon, somebody else is preaching, and it says this. David, having served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep. There, that phrase summarizes his whole life. He served the purpose of God in his generation. What an interesting way to encapsulate an entire life. And, you know, I would ask you, what, what do you want said about you? What, you have to be rich and famous? Is that it? I have to make my mark. Oh, good, what mark is that? Just out of curiosity. What will make it worthwhile? How much stuff? Big monument, write a book, have a big title? How fun is that? David, having served the purpose of God in his generation, died. I think that's a pretty good phrase. To serve the purpose of God in our generation, not perfectly, David didn't do it perfectly, nor have you or I. David, having served the purpose of God, that his whole life in a phrase. I think that's interesting. He's on a journey. Second Corinthians 5.1, he's talking about our, uh, the analogy of our body as a tent. We know that when this earthly tent is torn down, we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, pup tent. 
Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior. And then James 4.14, where the writer says, your life is like a vapor. Again, not meant to be discouraging. A couple of weeks ago, Kathy and I were in uh, the Midwest to attend the, uh, a conference for our, our church association and so on. And we left um, uh, to go to the airport real early, uh, driving across uh, south on the edge of Nebraska. And as, as we, we were up early enough to see the sunrise, and as the sun rises across the, the fields of, of Nebraska, as with any place in the Midwest, you, you see the, the, the little bit of the fog in the, in the low spots. And the sun comes up and filters through it, and it's glorious. And if you only sleep in, you've never seen it, right? But if you get up early, that's one of your rewards. So the, so the vapor, and the point of James 4.14 is that's your life right there. It's here, but soon that Nebraska sun will bake it, and it's all gone. It'll be a hot day today, a little bit of vapor. Oh, that's your life. It's your life. Again, not discouraging, motivating, motivating. You're a pilgrim on a journey. And the point here, these pilgrims knew they were on a journey. And it wasn't going to last forever. So they lived that way. And they valued things that way. I'm on a journey. Now, keep moving. 14 to 16. Pilgrims know their final destination. Well, sure. Take a look with me at the text. People, people who speak thus, in the way described in the text. That's the idea. People who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland if they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. I'll stop there. These pilgrims, I put in front of you there on your sermon notes, these pilgrims know their journey would one day end. They, they knew that. They live with that. This journey will come to a conclusion. They're seeking a homeland, a true promised land. If it was a life of ease they wanted, they could have had it. They just stayed in Ur. They could have gone back home. They traded comfort and security for a life intense. I think the fact that Abraham and Sarah had uh, resources available to them beyond what a tent would be is highlighted by it being spelled out in the text. They were living in tents, like, oh my goodness, exclamation mark, shocking. They lived in temporary dwellings for the rest of their life because they knew that something better was coming in the next. It's interesting to me, third bullet point, they knew less about heaven than we do today. But in a sense, their hearts were in heaven already. That interesting? They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't know what you know. But their hearts were there. They longed for what only heaven can provide. And at times, in a sense, so do we. Can I just think with you for a minute about this? C.S. Lewis, as I reference here, said a lot about that. Um, C.S. Lewis is hard to read in many, not the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, but in other of his books, and the weight of glory is, is heavy lifting in terms of reading. But the, he reminisces on some things here. And I just, in very quick manner, want to toss them at you. This business of longing. He would say, in a sense, not to give you, these are not his words, they're mine. Uh, that He would say some of the longings that we, we have are whispers of heaven. My words, not his. Here, here's what he means. The, 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 the human longing to know and be known and be safe. Right? Normal. Good. Right. Disappointing when we don't have it. Lewis would say that longing itself, however it works out in this life, 
It's, it's a whisper of heaven where there, finally, you'll be fully known, 1 Corinthians 13. Then we'll know fully as we are now fully known. Then, then, it'll be perfect. Until then, not quite so perfect. Every appetite, every longing, okay? Remember a couple years ago, um, a younger person asked me, you know, what's with all these middle-aged people having these midlife crises? I thought, why are you asking me? Uh, How would I know what middle-aged people want? Uh, (laughs) I'm kidding. I answered in part. I'm not sure a, a younger person could get this, but all of you who are older do. When you're younger, there are enough years ahead that you're hoping it'll all work out. It'll all improve. That person will finally get it. And then as you get older, you come to a, a different realization of the things that will or will not work out. It doesn't mean life's been a disappointment. It just means you have to come to grips with the things that aren't quite the way you dreamed. That makes sense? Not all of your dreams will come true in this life. When you're young, you think they might. As you age, you realize many of them won't. And you have to come to grips with that. For some, it's easy. For others, it's a bit of work. Now, again, that doesn't mean your life's a wreck unless you have all your dreams fulfilled. It just means that that's part of the process of living and growing. And, and again, Lewis would say, a whisper of heaven, the longings of your heart. You know, I, <laughs> you know how it is when you come back from vacation? Some of you aren't like this at all. You wish it was one more day longer, five, five degrees warmer or cooler, that the certain person or server or whatever was a little bit nicer, that the hotel was a little bit better. What, what is all that? What is that? That might be that you have a bad attitude. Stop it. Okay, so, so if that's you, mm, it could be that it's a whisper of heaven longing for the day that it's all perfect. Again, don't, if you're OCD on me, don't, don't use that as an excuse. I'm just longing for heaven. Stop that. I uh-uh, didn't say that. But I'm saying in a good sanctified way. Lewis was after this. The longings of our hearts are whispers of heaven because those things, however, long, however much we want them to get better here, will only be truly perfect there. Okay? Mull that over. Read Lewis if you need help with that. But I think he's on to something. And then finally, verse 16. Pilgrims will not always be pilgrims. Indeed, as pilgrims of old, one day we will finish our journey. The race does not last forever. Indeed, there's a finish line. And the text says God has prepared a city for them. Verse 16 uses that word desire again. They desire a better country. If all your desires are here, you'll be disappointed. These folks, these pilgrims so described, they desired a heavenly country. Their desires were for another time and another place where they knew they would be fully and finally fulfilled, a heavenly place. Therefore, and here's, here's my, really my final phrase as it is in the text. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What do you make of that phrase? This is the one I was referring to, this phrase. I don't know of any like it in the whole Bible. Even the concept God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, if you're a theologian and you like big $5 words, uh, this is an anthropopathism. 
Trust me, you can Google that and find out, which is ascribing human emotion to God. That's what it is. That's what you'll find on Google or something like that. It's ascribing human emotion to God. So God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is a statement about God valuing people of faith, people who trust him. He's not ashamed to be called their God. Now, we would say this differently. If I said to you, I'm not ashamed to be called your friend, how else might I say that? Is there another word I might use? I am, yeah, I'm proud to be your friend. It would mean kind of the same. And you think, you'd say that of God? Isn't that interesting? God is not ashamed to be called their God. Oh, they weren't perfect. They messed it up royal in several occasions. But they're men and women of faith. And they were pilgrims. They thought like pilgrims. They trusted him. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Proud to be called their God. He's prepared for them a city. I, I, I want to just direct your, your eyes down to responding to God's word. That portion there, I'd love to have you think about those two elements in terms of taking God's word home. Thinking with the pilgrim mindset, do you? I'd just love to have you reflect on that. And then the issue of struggling with your desires, not that you shouldn't have any, you should, because to be a human is to desire. The question is, what do you do with them? What do you want? What do you want? Really, what do you want? What are your desires? What do they say about what you value? And then I want to I want to close with this, and we'll pray and be done. Years ago, I remember in another another setting. This is well before time here, and certainly doesn't involve anybody here. I remember reflecting on that phrase in another setting with, and there was a young lady present who, along the way, had not made good decisions in some areas. And she was at a place of faith in Christ. And, but as she reflected on this with me afterwards, she said, it would never occur to me that God would be proud of me. I would have really reflected on the idea that God would be embarrassed to have me in his family. I haven't done it right. God is not ashamed to be called my God. (sighs) Stunning. Stunning. We talked about the gospel. That's the point of the gospel, isn't it? That Christ would wrap his his robe of righteousness around you and God would see you in his son. That It would truly be said, God is not ashamed to be called. He's proud to have you in the family. It isn't because you've been perfect. It's because of the work of Christ on your behalf. That phrase leads us to the gospel, leads us to Christ, who is your only hope. The point of all this isn't like do really good and make good choices, like be perfect or something. Nobody was. Abraham and Sarah weren't. It really leads us right to the gospel. Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, paid the price for all the junk we've done. Oh, all the good stuff we should have done and we didn't. Christ paid for all that. And as we trust Christ as our sin bearer, he he wraps his robe of righteousness around us so that he sees us in his son. Indeed, God is not ashamed to be called your God as you trust Christ as your savior. I hope you are. I hope you do. I want to pray for us that God will do his work in our hearts and draw us 
to him. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray together? Our Father, I thank you for the examples of faith in all of Hebrews 11, and in particular in our text today. I thank you for Abraham and Sarah. Together they blew it a lot of times. They did. There were times they didn't trust you. There were times they changed history with bad choices. But at the end of it all, you're not ashamed to be called their God. And you prepared a city for them that would be the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams. And Lord, we're not all that unlike them. Oh, different time and place. Different longings, different circumstances, yes, of course. But I thank you that you work in us, and I pray that you place in us the longings for things that are, are from you, things that will be measured by heaven's metrics and along the way, because we are found in your son, Jesus, that you would not be ashamed to be called our God as well. I pray this week, as we head into another week of day camp, that that hope of heaven and the work of Christ would be communicated well and clearly to the dozens and dozens of children who will sit in this room. Help us this week, all of us, as we pray, as we encourage, as we lead. Thank you for these folks. In Jesus' name, amen.